You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, a senior fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation and director of the John Hazen White Global Manufacturing Initiative at the Brookings Institution. For several decades, many American companies have shifted manufacturing to countries such as China, India, and elsewhere. The idea was to integrate the global economy, allow various nations to focus on different sectors, and build global supply chains that use components from many different places. But when the COVID pandemic emerged in 2020, it wreaked havoc on this model. Shortages developed in a number of areas and strained the ability of firms to get the components they needed for their products. At the same time, worries over national security and international competitiveness led many to rethink this approach and argue that it is time either to onshore manufacturing back in the United States or nearshore it in neighboring countries. To discuss these important questions, we are pleased to be joined by two distinguished experts. Melanie Sisson is a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution, where she focuses on national security, and she works in the Strobe Tabot Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology. Emily Weinstein is a research fellow at Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology. She focuses on U.S. national competitiveness. Melanie and Emily, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Really glad to be here. Thanks, Daryl. So let's start with Emily. So there are some individuals who argue it is time to start decoupling the U.S. economy from China and other parts of the global economy. The idea is that it is time when geopolitics have shifted dramatically and leaders are worrying about China, both from a security as well as a competitiveness standpoint. The argument is that America needs reliable supply chains and safer sources for its products. Is it possible to decouple the U.S. economy from parts of the global economy in general and China in particular? So I would say that, first off, I agree that there, there's so much talk recently, particularly in Washington, about this idea of decoupling the U.S. economy specifically from, from China. And I think We've begun to think about this in terms of broader parts of the global economy, too, in wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine almost a year ago now. So to be honest, in thinking about um, the U.S. and Chinese economies, it's, it's really impossible to think about any type of wholesale decoupling of the two. It's really actually kind of impossible. Our economies are so intertwined with each other, but also intertwined with the global economy. That What's interesting, too, is that the conversations around decoupling actually uh, technically should involve other parts of the world, um, Europe, South America, Southeast Asia, other parts of obviously um, Northeast Asia as well, because we can't have, we can't talk about U.S.-China decoupling without touching on a supply chain that hits on, you know, somewhere in, let's say, South Korea or financial markets that that are connected between China and Europe, for instance. There, there's no way to think about this, I would say, in a vacuum. Um, so, 
when we're thinking about decoupling, I, I would say, is it possible if we really, really tried, maybe, and if we did it in a multilateral capacity, we could. But I think the better question here is to think about, um, is it actually worth it? And in what areas, if we're thinking from the perspective of U.S. policymakers, what areas are the most um, critical to national security? What are the areas that if we did decide we had to decouple with China, what are the specific technologies? What are the specific sectors? Um, what actually is our objective here? And I think this is something that the U.S. the uh, U.S. policymakers are currently grappling with. What is really the objective here? Now, those are all uh, great uh, points. And uh, widespread decoupling would be very difficult. As you point out, uh, our economies are intertwined and other uh, countries are involved in the global supply chain as well. If we actually did want to move in the direction of decoupling, what would be involved if we actually tried to do that? If we wanted to do it in the, in the most effective way, um, I'm going to point actually to a study that I, I did with a CSEC colleague over the summer, uh, Tim Huang, where we look at uh, decoupling and strategic technologies. And we use um, an example from the 1990s and early 2000s um, in U.S. satellite technology to kind of ground our, our study and how decoupling might look um, in the future for, for things like artificial intelligence. And we actually uh, pulled from this satellite case study two kind of key lessons to think about uh, in decoupling. The first is thinking about decoupling or, you know, in this case, often the use of export controls or other kind of trade controls really as a delaying stratagem. It's not necessarily going to stop China in this case from being able to uh, progress um, or develop in certain emerging technologies. If we're thinking in artificial intelligence or things like that, um, decoupling is going to delay China's efforts to do that it's not going to wholesale stop them in their tracks, particularly, again, in, in certain types of emerging technologies. The other lesson here to think about is this idea of how geographic concentration influences the effectiveness of decoupling tactics. So things, again, like export controls. And I think, obviously, as the uh, semiconductor examples in mind, I think, honestly, that's a great example of thinking about how the geographic concentration of supply chains can affect decoupling. Um, supply chains, or I'm sorry, semiconductors are an interesting one because the supply chain is concentrated in a handful of countries that all tend to, for the most part, align on their views towards China. Obviously, that's not perfect. We've been watching um, the Dutch currently uh, grapple with uh, what to do with uh, U.S. export controls on semiconductors that came out back in October of last year. But for the most part, We've seen that technologies that have a small number of manufacturers that are usually concentrated in a handful of countries tend to lend themselves more effectively uh, to export controls or other types of kind of decoupling tactics. The last thing I'll say, though, is that if, if we're thinking about, you know, what would actually be involved in decoupling if we actually tried to do it, I think we also have to think about lessons to keep in mind in terms of, you know, monitoring when it might be not in our best interest to decouple. So along the lines of those two lessons, I'd point out the unilateral versus multilateral point here. Again, mm -hmm. I, I know I just said this earlier, but I do think that any amount, any attempts to use unilateral actions, unilateral export controls or anything like that, we've seen historically that unilateral controls tend to be ineffective and often counterproductive in the long term and may actually inhibit U.S. project and er, progress in specific, um, specific sectors or specific industries. Um, the last lesson I'll say, too, that I think is really important 
is that when we think about decoupling, we have to think about the issue of backfilling. I think this is something that there there are uh, a few historical case studies, including the satellite one that I mentioned before, that show that in many cases, when the U.S. chooses to go alone or go go it alone in these types of decoupling uh, policies like export controls, um, we start to see other countries jumping in to backfill where the U.S. has has left a gaping hole, which can lead to decreased U.S. competitiveness overall. So, for instance, in the recent semiconductor export controls in October, one of the things that I think we need to be looking for is the ongoing health and the ongoing success of U.S. semiconductor companies to make sure that other countries or other countries' companies um, or other companies in general are not coming into backfill where, for instance, NVIDIA can no longer sell its most advanced chips to China. So a few things to kind of watch for in, in terms of criteria on how we might go about thinking about decoupling. So, Melanie, I would love to get your thoughts on this as well. Is decoupling possible or even desirable? I'm going to start out by being a little bit uh, annoying and glib and saying, of you know, of course, it's a possibility. Anything in the world is possible. We certainly could shut our borders and, you know, break our economy and American consumers could have less of everything and pay more for everything. And we could, you know, just bring everything to a grinding halt. But obviously, that's silly. We're not going to do that. It's not feasible. And it's certainly not desirable. Now, does that mean we should do nothing? No, I do think, you know, as you mentioned, Daryl, in your introduction, that the COVID pandemic revealed that we have some unsustainable vulnerabilities, or at least some vulnerabilities that we prefer not to leave in place. And we can do two things about that. We can, as Emily mentioned, seek to diversify supply chains, whether that's through reshoring, friendshoring, or in other ways to try to minimize the extent to which we're vulnerable to those kinds of disruptions in key areas. So for example, rare earth minerals, you know, that are, are components or parts, materials that are used in strategic technologies like sensors and communications and renewable energy and those sorts of things. Medicines, for example, is another area that we sort of identified as being a problematic kind of vulnerability. We could certainly do those things. Uh, and the other thing we could do, and I wonder why this doesn't get as much conversation is to say, instead of seeking decoupling as a response, a rather dramatic response to revealing that we have these concerning areas where we didn't have adequate supply otherwise, we could also respond by creating stockpiles and having better preparedness for the fact, the reality that these kinds of shocks like pandemics or weather events, climate events, those sorts of things are probably going to keep happening. So we don't have to break our economy to be more prepared for them. We ought to also think about these other ways. We can uh, set up mechanisms in advance uh, as a just-in-case supply, for example, uh, these things happen again. Now, those are all uh, great points. So if we did happen to want to move in the direction of decoupling, what would be the obstacles to doing that? And what would make it difficult, if not impossible, to actually pull that off? Sure, it, it absolutely would be difficult to pull off. And I think the obstacles that come to my mind are, uh, first, the fact that it would require essentially an entire refactoring of domestic industry. So companies would fundamentally need to change their business models. And just from an infrastructure perspective, it would be enormously costly, you know, for 
the companies themselves as they try to build facilities and acquire the inputs they need, but also for consumers who would then see reductions in quantities produced, increases in wait times to get the things that they want to buy, and absolutely increases in prices. We uh, also, and I think this is a, a really important element when we have conversations about decoupling, is we don't currently have the workforce to support it. It's not as though we have uh, people trained in all facets of these industries, just sort of hiding in the woodwork or waiting around for uh, the world to change in this very dramatic way, and they're going to pop up and be ready to go on a moment's notice. And we also know that immigration uh, is a contested policy issue in this country. And so we certainly wouldn't rely on immigration supplies in the input of talent from other countries to resolve any labor shortfalls that we have here. And it is a real obstacle to say, how would we actually have the people, the human talent that we would need uh, for decoupling to function in any meaningful way? Yeah, people have told me that talent aspect is a big problem here. Like even in terms of the U.S. boosting its semiconductor manufacturing capabilities and, you know, we're going to build new uh, plants in several different places. It's not clear the United States actually has the uh, talent right now. So that will be a limiting factor. Emily, the Russian invasion of Ukraine shifted many features of the international order and put Russia under serious economic sanctions. How do you see that continuing conflict affecting global integration and decoupling? So in terms of the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine back in, in February of last year, I think there were a few notable aspects that stand out now almost a year later. One was the speed in which we were able to get U.S. allies and partners on board with the same, if not similar, trade controls. So this included both economic sanctions as well as export controls. Um, that coordination was something that we had really never seen before. Um, and it involved a, a host of a host of different things. So both in terms of, I would say, getting everyone up to speed with their own plurilateral controls in this context. So in this case, I'm referring to the domestic controls that that each of these countries, and there were 37 countries um, that did eventually sign on to uh, impose the same types of, of export controls on Russia. All of these countries have different levels of plurilateral controls in export controls. So the U.S. is, is I would say, one of the most advanced and has one of the most complicated and I would say developed export control system. Most of the export control systems of our allies, including those, I would say, Europe, I'm thinking South Korea, Japan, although I would say Japan and South Korea are a little more advanced, the majority of countries and the majority of our allies at this point have export control systems that are very limited to the scope of the four multilateral export control regimes, which I won't go into too much depth on those, but the big thing to take away here is that those controls are very much limited to controlling items as they relate to the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction or conventional weapons. So in the case that we're thinking about, uh, you know, various types of emerging technologies, if we're thinking about artificial intelligence, obviously those are just a piece of the controls that we wanted to impose related to Russia. But um, it, our, our allies were, were very much limited in terms of their capacity to do that. So having everyone kind of jump on board and quickly act to change their domestic controls in response to the Ukraine invasion, I think was was really, really novel, to say the least. Um, 
again, more broadly in thinking about how we see this affecting the global economy? How do we see this kind of playing out going forward? I wasn't sure that we'd be able to see the impact of these types of controls as quickly as we did. Usually with economic sanctions, you can often see a financial effect pretty quickly. But with export controls, it's it's often um, harder to see the direct impact of these. And I think based on reporting that I've seen coming out of, of Russia and other places that are looking into supply chains there, it seems like these export controls have actually been pretty effective. And we, we're seeing that pretty, I mean, within a year of imposing them, which is, again, pretty impressive. So I think going forward, these obviously have, have had a huge impact on, on both the Russian military and the Russian economy. We've, um, we've made it really so that not Russia can, uh, the Russian military uh, both is incapable of getting new things, so new weapons, new supplies, um, but they're also limited in their capacity to update or fix the supplies or weapons that they do have right now. And I think that was a, a big calculation in assessing how we were going to go about with these export controls. I do think um, in terms of how this conflict will, will affect kind of global integration in general, I think we're already seeing some shifting of supply chains. I would say less so because Russia has historically not been as much of a large player in the, in global supply chains outside of, of the oil and gas industry. I would say that's kind of the, the outlier here. But for the most part, we're really seeing Russia, I would say, grapple with how it can now use its leverage over the few choke points that it does still have, perhaps obviously in, in oil and, and natural gas to get what else it needs at this point in time. I think we're seeing that a little bit in Europe. We've seen big concerns about heating Europe throughout the winter. I think going forward, I think we'll, we'll continue to see Russia try to use its remaining points of leverage over mostly, I would say, its neighbors in Europe. I think it has less areas of leverage over the United States at this point in time. But it will be interesting to see, I think, how they go about dealing with it. I do think this also sent a big message to countries like China who had also never seen this type of multilateral response. Um, I mean, well, not, none of us had. So I think China has been able, China's been sitting back and really watching this, watching this play out very closely. We have access at, at CSET to a wide range of, of data, including um, academic literature. And researchers in China are very, very um, interested in kind of monitoring these types of events. So there's, there's a whole host of literature out there on Chinese responses and potential policy responses to the uh, Huawei and ZTE export controls that, that happened uh, during the Trump administration. So I'm sure we'll start to see kind of similar research start to come out of China. They're, they're really going to watch, I would say, both how the U.S. chooses to, um, I would say, move forward on multilateral export controls and, and multilateral controls kind of writ large, but also how this actually will affect Russia both in the short term, as we're seeing now, but as well also in the long term. So, Melanie, how do you see the Ukraine war affecting the global economy and the way in which various nations might view their self-interests? Well, first, you know, of course, it has to be said that the war is exacting a terrible cost in Ukraine in human terms. And, and I say that not just out of the thing that one always says when we talk about this war, but because I think it's also important to note that there are human costs that extend beyond just the borders of where the conflict is actually occurring. And in particular, what I have in mind is the effects on uh, food supplies and the fact that 
you know, there are parts of the world that are, don't have access to the grains and fertilizers and other sort of fundamental needs that they have in order to um, feed their populations. And so the costs in, in human terms are really very high. The economy, of course, is affected in other ways, the global economy. Emily mentioned that the conflict has changed and reshaped energy markets. And with that has come volatility and unpredictability and changes in energy prices. We know in this country that there was a, a fairly pronounced reaction to increased uh, prices of gasoline in 2022. And we were on the low end of that. Obviously, the energy market affects European countries in, in far more direct and painful ways, given their prior relationship with Russia. And of course, all of those prices, as energy prices increase, that contributes to inflation. And so globally, the costs of goods and services has increased. And so, you know, the effects really are reverberating sort of well beyond the direct relationships between and among Russia and its um, and its buyers and suppliers. So I think, you know, that's, there's just no way around that the events are reshaping the global economy. And we don't quite know what that will look like uh, when, or if hopefully when in the nearer term, the conflict finds some kind of resolution. You asked about, uh, Daryl, the self-interest element of this. And I guess my reaction is that it probably doesn't change the fundamentals of how states think about and understand their self-interest, but I think it certainly is occasioning a good think about how best to pursue them, which is to say, you know, are we balancing the benefits and risks of globalization properly? How much dependence is too much? And where are there places where for strategic reasons or because the reality of the global market is such that there is only a particular supplier and we need to diversify or any of those sorts of moving pieces? Are there places where asking consumers to pay a higher cost is a necessary evil? And I think it's also affecting how these states are thinking about their relationships with other states and how they're framing their choices of who to buy with, who to partner with, who to sell to, all of sort of those elements of economic exchange. I think in the not-so-distant past, economics, uh, the logic of economics, the incentives of economics used to be enough of a justification. I think that Putin's behavior, um, this particularly vile invasion, has, has caused states to think a bit differently about what characteristics are important when we sort of make these kinds of arrangements to integrate and to cooperate and coordinate with each other in these ways. So Emily, one crucial set of players in the global economy is American business leaders. So if you are a corporate leader who currently does a lot of business in China, what advice would you give to that leader? What are the possible scenarios and how should they incorporate alternative possibilities in their planning? So I think now it's January 2023, maybe about five, even 10 years ago for sure, but maybe even up to five, maybe even three years ago, there was still an opportunity, I think, for, for business leaders. And I'll also put um, academics in this category because I, I do think it's important to think about universities and their relationship with China as well. I think for a while, there was still this kind of naivete that, that folks tended to lean on where they'd say, we don't speak Chinese, we aren't able to do the amount of due diligence, we, we did the due diligence, and we're sure that everything's fine, or, oh, you know, China, you know, I understand that horrible tech transfer thing happened to you, but it won't happen to us. There was a lot of this over and over again. Um, I think now in, in, in January 2023, it's no longer the case that people can have or express that that naive 
point of, of view anymore. I think most of the concerns related to China and tech transfer have come into you know everyone's uh, it, it come into everyone's lives via the media, via other things. And it's no longer just stuck, I would say, in kind of the, the tech policy or, or China policy world that the rest of us in, in D.C. sometimes sit in. So to that point, I think um, this is not to say that we have to assume that everything in China is bad. In fact, I think that actually that attitude, particularly in academia and the business community, is going to hurt us more than it's going to help. What I think we need to do now is enter into collaborations or business deals or you know different things with Chinese partners with open eyes. We understand that there is some amount of risk that we have to take in entering into these relationships. Let's think about what those risks are, assuming again that these risks are not black and white. There's not, you know, it's not that you're either going to accept all the risk or there's no risk. Again, that risk is always going to be there. So how do you as a as a company, as a researcher, as a university administrator, you know, how do you think about assessing risk in the context of your specific deal, transaction, and so on and so forth. And I think a lot of folks are going to turn around and say, oh, you know, we don't have time to do that. I think, unfortunately, we can't lean on that answer anymore. I think we really need to, when I'm talking to folks in the business community or in academia, I'm really emphasizing that even if you don't think you have the time, you need to make the time because otherwise it's going to hurt you in the long run. It could hurt you reputationally, financially. It could affect how you do business with other countries or how you do collaborations. For instance, if you wanted to get uh, grant funding from the U.S. government, there, there are just it's going to come back to haunt you in some capacity if you don't think about it. So my biggest thing when I'm talking to these folks again is making sure that we have the necessary tools or we, I would say, I, I talked about we as in folks who are looking very, very in-depth at, at you know issues related to China tech transfer or who some of the problematic players in China might be. For folks like us, it's helpful to make sure that we are providing as much due diligence materials to these folks as we can. So for instance, um, CSET and, and our director, Dewey Murdoch, um, have advocated for the creation of some type of, for instance, uh, science and technology analysis center that exists outside of the intelligence community here in the U.S. Something like this could be a really awesome place to monitor trends in emerging technologies in particular, but could also be a place where we have the capacity to do translations. And there are folks who can translate things from Mandarin into English or from Russian into English and vice versa to um, be able to provide folks who are trying to navigate business or collaborations in China, the necessary tools to do so effectively. I can't even tell you the number of times that I have been looking at, you know, let's say there's an example um, of with hindsight, a company enters into an agreement with China and they realize after the fact, oh, I, I didn't realize that this was a military entity or I didn't realize that, you know, so-and-so was connected to this organization. Usually in the course of, I would say, 10 minutes to an hour, Someone like myself with Chinese language experience or abilities can usually go in in the Chinese language and find a pretty damning piece of evidence that connects those two things. So in that case, I, I think it behooves folks like myself. And again, I'm calling to, I would say, the broader China policy community to help to put more of this stuff out there in the open source with hard data, with hard examples, translations to really help folks try to navigate those relationships. Because again, you can no longer claim that you don't understand the risks if you're a business leader or a university administrator or researcher. But we, I do understand that it is difficult to take the time to do this. So we need to meet each other halfway.
So Melanie, what kind of advice would you offer to business leaders and what kind of scenarios do you think they should be thinking about? Yeah, you know, I my, my answer to this is sort of an Occam's razor answer, which is my advice is don't panic. Don't be reactionary. Uh, I think business leaders should just be good at their jobs and respond to market incentives. The ones that they have all those smart analysts that they pay that tell them these are the operative incentives today and we think these are going to be the operative incentives tomorrow. Just listen to those smart analysts and run their business. I also happen to believe in the creative destruction of capitalism. And so the business leaders who do all of those wonderful things that Emily just recommended are more likely to survive and thrive. And the ones that don't are unlikely to survive and thrive. And I think that's the sort of weeding process. So, you know, again, just a really simple, just be good at your jobs, just run your business as well. So Emily, what would be the impact on American workers in the American economy if the U.S. did move towards some type of decoupling? We've talked a little bit about the workforce issues here, and I think these are really important to consider uh, when we are thinking about decoupling. It's this intersection between where, where foreign policy all of a sudden comes to really affect domestic policy. I know we we often, those who work in the foreign policy community are often, we get stuck in our international perspectives, but this is really a, an awesome case to show that you know these things are all connected. So with the workforce things, I think in particular related to the semiconductor industry, I'm totally going to to praise some of my CSET colleagues who have done some really excellent work in, in both understanding the U.S. semiconductor workforce more specifically, but also understanding the U.S. workforce more, more broadly. So I highly recommend checking out some of their work if you're interested in that. But I do think the biggest thing right now that I want to emphasize is, is that decoupling is going to have a massive effect on some of these industries in particular, like semiconductors, where the supply chain is not just stuck here in the US. I think, again, to go back to my conversation about backfilling that I I was talking about earlier on, I think we often think about backfilling as backfilling as in items or in in, equipment or, or supply chains. But I think there's a broader conversation about backfilling in terms of workforce or talent, where companies are always going to look for the cheapest workforce. And I think this is something we've seen for decades now, looking at kind of the push to move manufacturing to various parts of Asia, whether that be China or India or or, other places. Um, But I I really think that that's something that we really need to be paying attention to is looking at the third party countries. So not just the US, not just China, where do we see instances of countries trying to kind of market their workforces to fill the gap here? Because that's where we're really going to I think that's where U.S. workers are really going to be feeling the pain here. I also just want to emphasize, I know the U.S. is doing a lot more in terms of STEM education, but I think there's a lot more that we can do. And some of my colleagues, again, who are working specifically on workforce issues, talk a lot about community colleges and uh, the role that community colleges and associate's degrees uh, play, particularly in emerging technologies like artificial intelligence. In AI or in other types of these emerging technologies, you have obviously your PhD level researchers who are working in very advanced topics, but you also need the technicians, you need the, the folks who are working in the factories. And those are obviously not always going to be the folks who have the you know super advanced uh, computer science PhDs. 
other countries do a much better job at marketing this part of its workforce, including China. But I would also say other countries in Europe, for instance, I know in Germany, there are great programs to get folks kind of off the ground from some type of associate's degree or, or community college degree and get them directly into the workforce. I do think in the U.S. we still have a bit of a stigma around this type of education. You know, if we do decide to go down a more decoupling-ish route, that we do try to pay attention to those types of things like community colleges, associate's degree programs that could help us maybe fill those gaps in the instance that backfilling does occur in the workforce. So Melanie, I'm curious about your thoughts on the impact of a possible decoupling on American workers in the American economy. Sure. So decoupling, the effects on the American workers and the economy broadly would vary by industry and it would also vary by the amount of time that we're talking about. So, you know, decoupling fast would be really painful and the pain of decoupling slowly would then depend on how much and how well industry and government in tandem could cushion the costs of transitions, both financially and in terms of, of job training. Um you know, I think the universal statement is that decoupling, no matter what, will increase consumer costs. There's just no way around that. I think you mentioned earlier, Daryl, that, you know, globalization happened for a reason, which is comparative advantage. And businesses were able to create processes that were more efficient, which uh, reduced costs to consumers. And that was one of the main benefits of, of globalization. And there were some dislocations to be sure as a part of that process as manufacturing and other industries and the balance of where businesses were undertaking their activities shifted and in many cases went overseas. And we would have to expect that same kind of dislocation in reverse to happen uh, if we were to start decoupling. Now, and, and I do want to be clear, we've talked a lot about decoupling with China I will confess that in my head, when we talk about decoupling from China, I just see it as a, a, a retrenchment from globalization more broadly because of the extent to which the U.S. and Chinese economies are deeply embedded and the relationships that both of those countries have globally with uh, any number of countries around the world. It isn't just a bilateral question. It's not a bilateral equation. Um, the effects are going to be broad and wide and deep. To think about what effect that would have on the American workforce, on American workers, on our economy, I think we have to talk about it in that broad deglobalization sense. And so because that's my perspective on it, I really am very wary on behalf of the American worker, certainly in the near term, about the kind of dislocation and disruption that this might cause until over time, you know, industry could resettle, workforce patterns could reassert themselves, people would be able to have been retrained and rejoin the workforce in ways and places that they prefer. In general, uh, though, I really, I see an awful lot of downside to decoupling and deglobalization this way, and not a lot of upside. I still really worry that our reasons for taking this as seriously as we are, are perhaps an overreaction, uh, both to the global pandemic shock uh, that we are still working our way through, and also as a reaction to the downward shift in the US-China relationship. And I really um, would like to put the brakes on sort of reactivity to both of those things and encourage some sober contemplation, especially as your questions rightly point to, Daryl, that these are high cost kinds of policies to pursue. And we need to be really mindful of that as we 
think about them moving forward, much less start to implement them. I think that is an important point. I think you're absolutely right that we can't decouple from China without also decoupling from other nations, including uh, places that we would see as our allies. Emily, it seems like one crucial area where some decoupling and some export controls already are moving forward is in the tech space, and particularly in regard to the manufacture of computer chips. The U.S. government is investing billions in bringing manufacturing capabilities back to the United States. How do you see that area playing out and affecting this whole more general conversation about decoupling? I would say the recent policy moves on emerging technology and in particular in semiconductors, I think is a really interesting first attempt at at a a quasi-industrial policy on the U.S. side that covers both the promote and protect sides of competition. So in chips, we saw on October 7th of last year, we saw this this massive um, imposition of new controls uh, aimed to limit the development and production of advanced computing and semiconductor capabilities in China that came with like 137 pages of, of new, very technical controls. So if that's on the protect side, I would say then the Chips and Science Act, which passed, I think, just about a month before, if not a little bit uh, a little bit earlier than the imposition of these new export controls, which I think does a really good job at trying to then fill the promote side of competing with China. I think the biggest question for me now is whether or not, and this is not an answer that I have, it's something I'm going to be watching going forward, is whether or not these two promote, these two instances, so the promote and protect side of, of these recent chip related policies, actually do end up working in tandem. So for instance, some concerns I've heard about the export controls from October are that they are uh, massively hurting U.S. uh, companies in the chip supply chain. Some folks have then responded and said, oh, well, look, well, you know, companies like NVIDIA and some of the semiconductor software companies are going to be hopefully getting some more money from the Chips and Science Act. So hopefully that will help to kind of balance that out. Some people think it will be enough money. Some people think it won't even get close to touching on um, the potential losses that they'll experience uh, as a result of these export controls. So I don't have a good answer on that, but I think that's one piece of this that I'm watching. And I think this will be a great lesson for the U.S. going forward in terms of how we do this again, I'm I'm using air quotes here, this kind of quasi-industrial policy type maneuver, where again, we are pulling the promote and protect levers simultaneously. Because I do think I'm a big advocate, again, for, for doing these things at the same time. Because otherwise, you're either, I would say, if you go all promote and no protect, you're leaving yourself open uh, for issues, tech transfer, your IP theft, all those things are kind of playing offense, no defense. And on the same side, if you're only playing defense, if you're only doing things like trade controls, export controls, um, you're creating potentially some massive holes. And I think this, again, goes back to the conversation around backfilling. It goes back to the conversation around, um, again, unilateral controls. If, if going the unilateral route ends up being ineffective and counterproductive going forward, uh, it leaves you open to those things. So I hope if we're, you know, I know the Biden administration has emphasized, obviously, AI, but they're interested also in, in um, emerging technologies like biotechnologies, they're interesting it, interested in new new energy and electric vehicles, solar panels, all these different kind of fields. So it will be interesting to see how the administration takes the lessons from chips in particular and applies these um, to our policies or strategies on other emerging technologies. 
Melanie, I'd like to get your uh, thoughts on semiconductors and how uh, some of these developments are playing out in that area. I will say I am a fan of the CHIPS Act in particular and some of the executive orders that the administration has been putting out. But my reasons are maybe sort of different than others. And the first thing I'll say is that they reveal, and and I will say Jake Sullivan has actually made this explicit, what the administration's technology policy is focusing on. So they have three priorities. Emily referred to them, clean energy, computing, and biotechnology. And in the first instance, I like that they have priorities, that they are prioritizing. And I really don't quibble with the choices that they've made in that regard. In terms of the CHIPS Act in particular, the semiconductor uh, fabrication incentives, that $52 billion for the semiconductor, the chip fabs, um, they get a lot of heat and light and a lot of attention. And that's fine insofar as I think what that's allowed the administration to do is smuggle in the part that I really like, which is the $200 billion being devoted to science and technology research and to training and to education programs. Um, I'm going to be watching both um, of those portions of the new policy, both the whether or not that $52 billion and how it's distributed is enough to actually incentivize the kind of interest from industry that the administration hopes. I think they put that $52 billion out as sort of a, a teaser to give people a taste. You'll get some amount of subsidy to start building domestically. But let's be clear that the amounts that any one company can get are really small relative to the cost of actually building a fab. So I think it's $20 billion uh, to build a fully functioning fab and the entire pie is $52 billion. Clearly, the, the math there means that uh, any number of companies are going to be getting far less than what they need actually to set up shop. And by the way, those subsidies come with some considerable strings. And so again, all those smart analysts and consultancies out there that are working with industry are crunching numbers and trying to figure out which way the wind blows in terms of profitability in that regard. So we'll have to see how that shapes up. And then again, of course, given that I'm very pleased about that $200 billion being devoted to research and uh, development and training is I really want to see how effectively that money can get distributed and whether or not we can do it well enough to generate and attract the real talent that those three priority areas need if we can expect them to sort of generate any real returns. So those are the two parts that I'm going to be paying close attention to. There definitely will be lots to watch on the implementation of that act in all those billions of dollars. I want to thank Emily and Melanie for sharing their thoughts with us today. Yeah, each of them had tremendous insights, and I appreciate them taking the time to join us. At Brookings, we write regularly about digital technology, and you can find more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brookings.edu. Thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.